All right, everybody, 265 Police Live from New York's finest retired unfiltered podcast. So here we are. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary to commemorate the untimely and unfortunate death of Police Officer Rivera and Police Officer Mora from the NYPD. Yesterday, the NYPD held a mass in regards. So uh, John and I at New York's finest retired unfiltered podcast we want to send our condolences and our blessings to, to the families of now posthumously promoted Detective Rivera and Detective Mora. My heart goes out to them. Uh, they'll never be forgotten for us. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, we see politicians, the media, the public put out information and claim that they'll never be forgotten. But we know from their perspective, it's just not true. And it's not true because we see the legislation that has been implemented, the abuse that's been put on the cops. So, uh, but my heart goes out to uh, families and uh, Officer Rivera and Officer Mora. You will never be forgotten. So, John, what, what do you think? What do you want to talk about? No, yeah, I just want to just piggyback off what you said about that. And, you know, one of the reasons I started this was to commemorate their deaths. And, like, that's one of the reasons I got very active on social media and, and all of that because – you know, watching both their masses was pretty difficult for me. I had just left a job. Uh, I was still running time at that time. And watching the masses and watching, oh, we'll never forget and we'll always honor you in death. And, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, ha I have a pretty bad outlook on, on the department and how they're treating officers currently. And I, and I say, and I, and I'm glad the way they handled the unfortunate and untimely death that in my opinion didn't need to happen. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I can't help but think what if, what if that, that day didn't happen? How would they be treated? How would the NYPD have honored them? You know, like only, only a week after, after their, their, the funerals, both the funerals, you know, uh, I think I believe uh, 30 somewhere around 30 officers were fired for not complying with the vaccine mandate. And, you know, and that was the first set of firing after, after their death, when we were just said, Oh, we need to do more to respect our police. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't really seen anything change since their death other than I've heard nice words. You know, I feel terrible for the family. Um, Eric had since, since, since that time, do you, how do you feel? Do you feel things have gotten better for cops? Absolutely not. I mean, I thought it was it was just uh, at the time when they had passed, it was just so ridiculous to me. And, and I'm going to be honest, I, I, I laugh. Most things I laugh off and they don't bother me. But it, it, it really hurt me back then because at the time – I was already going through a department trial for one of my civilian complaints. And so this was January, 2022. And I had already testified two days for my trial and I had to go back for, for another day. I mean, this ended up going on for months. So after their deaths, I figured actually, I actually had to go to another day and it actually the day had fell out after uh, Rivera had passed. And Mora was still in the hospital at the time. We were still gripping, you know, praying that he would he would hang on. So I figured that my tr my department trial, I figured that it would be delayed or postponed. I mean, here we are. We're still mourning. And, and I mean it. To me, I never met them. 
but their fellow brothers. I mean, that could be us. That's the bottom line. Their, their family, their fellow brothers. I mean, I, I saw myself in them. I see my cops in them. So I said, they're definitely going to postpone this trial. Well, to my surprise, nope. The trial was still on. I went down to the department trial. And there, the Civilian Complaint Review Board attorneys were talking about me like I was the biggest piece of shit on earth. They talked about me like I was some type of monster. Now, I don't want to make this about myself. I said, wow. I mean, you're basically kicking the grave of these two, uh, these two police officers. One, at the, at the time, had already met, met his demise. And the other one was in the hospital, still hanging on for dear life. And they were talking about myself doing police work like I was a monster and just totally just desecrating the profession. So it, at the time, I got to be honest, it really hurts. And wow, it just doesn't matter. It really didn't matter. I mean, these were just words we heard on TV. These were buzzwords, but nobody cared. The department trial, the advocate was still pushing forward. It w there was no postponement. postponement. He could have made that call. And they just talked about me like I was a piece of garbage. And I said, wow, if you talk about me as I'm a piece of garbage, these two police officers just put their lives on the line for the city. You're talking about them. If you talk about me, you're talking about them. I, I'm sure you agree with this. I do. I mean, I I'm telling you, it was a it was it was a really rough time for me. There was a lot of volatile things I could have said at the time, and there's a lot of volatile things I could say right now that I don't want to use the deaths of these two officers to to highlight those things. But but it needs to be done, and it needs to be said. You know, I was very critical of Eric Adams right around that time. He had just stepped into office. I said I would have expected more from a cop. Uh, I did an interview on Fox at that time, and I took a lot of heat from it. Oh, this isn't the time to divide. You know what? I, I think it is. I think it is the exact time to speak the truth. I'm not trying to divide anything, and I don't think you are either, Eric. I think what we're doing is saying what's being said in the car, um, you know, and, and, for, and I think we're saying what we would have said if we were still on, if we would have still had the opportunity to be New York City police officers, you know, if I, you know. Again, if we would have got killed in the line of duty, everybody would have loved us, right? But in life, we weren't good enough, right? In life, we weren't good enough to continue our careers. Eric had too many uh, CCRBs because he he did his job the way he was asked to do. And it was not in, in a, a politically fashionable for anyone to, uh, un, to not find him guilty or to turn around and unsubstantiate his CCRBs. And it was not too politically uh, fashionable for anyone to approve my religious exemptions to my religious or my medical exemption that in, that clearly they violated the law to go along with the mayor. So I don't believe that our officers currently are being are being uh, honored in life. You know, I don't you know, just it's 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 easy to honor everyone in life. You know, we have all these organizations built up around cop death. Oh, everyone cares when a cop dies, but nobody gives two shits when a cop's alive, you know, and it's, it's sad, you know, it's sad. We had an, an unfortunate suicide. I, I know you've seen that as well, Eric, you know. Well, I, I think when it comes to suicide, that the NYPD is a silent killer when it comes to these suicides, honestly, because there, there is no reaction and there's no preventative measures with the NYPD whatsoever when it comes to suicide, which is a total separate entity. But I just think that that's a major factor contributing to the, the deaths of our police officers right now. I mean, we, I saw it in the Marine Corps. 
And still to this day, 22 veterans commit suicide a day. But here, the New York, New York City Police Department, which is on the local level, we have much less volume than the military. We really could zone in and zoom in and concentrate on the details of what's going on and find a way to help these guys. And I've heard some people say, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the job is causing their deaths. And that's I, I agree 100 percent. These cops that have taken their lives, we don't know what, what happened with them. Only they know. They may very well have things going on at home. But if the NYPD is not helping, if morale is so bad and you have things going on at home, then there's no outlet. There's nothing to look forward to. So when you go into work, you got that pressure as well. And it shouldn't matter. If there's something going on at home, the NYPD claims they're a family. They should be there for you. But that's not the case. And it's unfortunate what you're saying. You and I were talking offline. I totally agree with you. We honor cops in their death. And, and we're going to say this. It, it, it may hurt, but it's a reality. It's true. Police officer Rivera and police officer Mora, unless their father was related to Dermot Shea, they would have not been promoted to detective. But unfortunately, posthumously, because they died in line of duty, they were promoted to detective. But while they're living, which counts where they can provide for their families, they had zero chance of ever getting a shield unless they had the right nepotism or they were associated with the Hispanic society. Unless they had the right networks, it wasn't the cards for them. Now, I'd like to go one even further and tell you that I am super impressed by police officer Rivera's wife. And uh, just to even go, just even circle back to talk about what she said when she, when she spoke last year at the funeral, I mean, first of all, her words were, were have touched everyone. I, I don't believe they just touched New York City. They touched the whole world because everyone was watching. And remember what she said. She said that D.A. Bragg, is, DA Bragg is not supporting the police. He's not supporting justice. He should be removed. And Mayor Adams heard this, Governor Holchel, and here we are a year later. And he still stands. He still stands. So where is the support? I mean, this just, this young lady is super impressive. Also, if the public doesn't know, she's actually pregnant right now. They're calling uh, her her pregnancy the miracle baby, uh, the miracle birth or miracle pregnancy, which I think is fantastic. And I wish her nothing but blessings. God bless her and that she could carry on the legacy uh, of her husband. Um, that, that's just amazing. Honestly, I hope that you're watching. I don't know. We don't. We never personally met you. If you're watching this podcast, we support you. And we thought your that at the mass, your speech was remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that uh, you know, that's another unfortunate moment. I think in in time and in in our era of life and in our career that you know the world stood still for a little bit, you know, everybody was like, Hey, what the hell's going on here? You know, maybe, maybe all the rhetoric we're talking, but still, even during that time, I remember reports of, you know, people posting on social media during the funerals and, and, and the lineups to honor these young men. You know, I remember a teacher specifically, um, you know, coming out, spewing anti-police rhetoric, saying, Oh, someone should drive a car through all these guys, you know, who was making threats. Um, you know, and it's just it's 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 really hard and it's hard for the, the wives too to speak out. And I know that, 
you know, particularly like NYPD widows when their husbands were killed in the line of duty. I know the job does do a lot for them. And I know the union, whatever union that they, they belong to does a lot for them. Um, so it's very hard politically to go against the people that are helping you. And at that time, you're very vulnerable. But she, you know, she highlighted it, that her husband was not happy with the way things were going as a very young cop on this job, you know. And since he's left, we've had numerous officers leave. You know, it's, it's, the, it's been the highest exodus on record, not only in the NYPD, but in New York City. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, it's great. It's great to have a nice funeral and for someone that served this city and laid down their life for this city to make this city a better place. And, and, and it's great to memorialize somebody every year. And it's great to say we'll never forget. But when those dates go, when the dates go, when the date of death goes, when the anniversary masses go, I mean, we we don't honor them. We totally forget. You know, we totally forget. And and that's, you know, you, you said it, you said it best, you know, I, I, you know, and I'll quote you again. What Eric Dim said was, and he said this to me offline, we spoke with a young man who was having uh, mental issues. He was suicidal on this job. And what Eric said at the end, after we spoke, we hung up, we talked to him for about an hour or two. And, uh, you know, it's all offline. And uh, he basically walked us through the whole process. And what Eric said at the time was, it's not, it's not police work that is killing these people. It's the NYPD that is. It's the internal pressures of the NYPD that is. And honestly, you know, everyone says, oh, well, they have an access to a gun. You know, it's not fair. They have stuff going on at home. Yes, 100%. Every person alive has something going on at home. But not every person alive doesn't know when they're going to be off. Works, works hours they don't want to work. Works holidays. Works weekends gets treated like shit everywhere they go in public. And that's fine because I'm sure most cops really don't care. It's the internal pressure of the job. Oh, you didn't produce enough summonses. Oh, you didn't produce enough arrests. What happened on this job? What happened on that job? What happened on this job? You know, and it's just a constant, constant bombardment of, you know, and even the volume in which New York City police officers handle this, the, the rates of these jobs at when you're, handling 20, 30 jobs a day and you're being forced four hours of overtime at the end of the day to go stand on a train, maybe not even in the borough where you work. Now it's going to take you an extra two hours to get undressed and get home and get all this stuff. And you're doing this tired. You're doing it with a poor diet and you're doing it while you feel you have no support from the mayor, from the media, from even your supervisors. Your supervisors are in direct conflict with you. Although they may agree with you, they, you know, they, you know, again, they won't exhibit the moral integrity to stand up because it's always, hey, what are we going to do? You know, I got two more years. I got five more years. I got seven more years. I'm trying to get this. And, you know, the internal pressures of the NYPD is something I've dealt with. And, and Eric, I know you dealt with it, too. I mean, I know you, you haven't spoke on it much, but I'm sure that, you know, you went through hard times. And, and, and you know, getting eight sets of charges in one year, it, it has to be a very scary feeling. Am I going to lose my job for doing my job? Uh, it was, it was by far the worst year of my career. I would, I would say it all the time, and, and I'll tell you right now, I would much rather get together with the guys and have a tactical plan to apprehend a violent perpetrator or seven violent perpetrators 
who have just shot someone who I know is in, a, in possession of a legal firearm, who I know has a potential of firing a shot at us. That, to me, is by far, I can, I would grasp that and handle that much better than the internal pressures of the NYPD. Because at least in that case, you could plan for it. You could fight back. But when it comes to internal pressure of the NYPD, it's almost like you're alone. I used to tell the guys, I used to, tell them, I used to do briefings constantly to educate the guys that worked for me. We would always have trainings and discuss things and, and just to make us better. And one thing I would tell them is to understand that don't put yourself in a position that you're going to have an investigation that that may become overwhelming. And the reason why I would say is, unfortunately, on this job, when you're facing some type of investigation, it's almost like you're going to your funeral. Because when you were doing that police work, or you worked as a team, or you worked with a partner, or you worked on the direction of your commanding officer. But when you go to an investigation... You go alone. So it's almost like you're going to your funeral. And that's what happened to me. And that's why I say that the NYPD has no system in place, nor do they care to have preventive measures, preventive measures for suicide, or not even suicide, just mental health issues. So I was never suicidal. I, I'm actually just a very strong person. But I could see how someone could be. I had eight sets of charges in one year. And I can tell you, I my mental health was definitely deteriorating. I found myself, when I came to work, I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. I, there was even times, honestly, I was scared just to go into my office because, you know, at the time, I was working with a fellow lieutenant. We shared an office. And when I would walk down the hall, I could see him sitting by the door because that's the position of the way he was by the computer at his desk. And he would give me that look as I was walking towards, like, like it's safe to come in. Or, you know, he would put his head down like... There's another envelope for you. And he knew, like, he felt the stresses for me. And it, it was just mounting up. But no one, you know, just a couple of people that were close to me. But other than that, no one from the job had ever called me and said, hey, listen, Lieutenant, you know, you have eight sets of charges. It's mounting up. It's the, obviously, the Civilian Complaint Review Board is targeting you. You know, is there anything you need? What can we do for you? You know, I was in contact with the union constantly. Because they were representing me for the cases. So, I mean, that was, for me, that was someone to talk to. But I, I don't know if they were calling me because they actually cared, but, you know, but it was because I had these cases. But other than that, no one from the early assistance unit or any other unit just called to say, how you doing? There was one chief on the job, you know, I would like to give him a shout out because he's the only one that called me that didn't work with me anymore. There were some people that worked with me, but, uh, and his name is O'Sullivan. And he's a chief on the job. And he, I worked for him like three, four years prior to this. But he would call me constantly. And say, hey, how you doing? Everything all right? He would call me constantly. So for that, I really appreciate it. But other than that, it's almost like you have leprosy. And they and, and they left me alone. And and here I am mounting charges. And, and thank God, you know, I always had a strong mindset. But I, I did feel myself deteriorating. And it was getting scary, you know. I was doing well with combating these 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 civilian complaints, but I said at some point maybe my luck's going to run out, you know. So I, I I mentally prepared myself that if this job doesn't work out, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure I take care of my family. Yeah, so and and you know, I think I think for me and you, like I felt the same pressures, like 
during the time of the vaccine mandate. Obviously, I, I vested out with uh, 18 years on. I was in a spot with a take-home car, making uh, 40 hours overtime a month. Uh, I basically I made my own hours. I was in the position that I worked my whole career to get to, and I had just gotten there. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed it. But I think I and the stress that I was going through at the time, I would come into work each day, similar to what you're saying, and rules would just constantly change. And it would be like, what do I have to enforce on top of what's going to be enforced on me? Right. Yeah. I have to enforce this this stuff. I, I was the integrity control officer, right? You know, it's funny. It's funny using the word integrity now, but you know, it's I was the integrity control officer. And uh, you know. <laughs> I, I would have to enforce this nonsensical garbage that I didn't believe in. You know, I didn't, I wouldn't enforce the masking. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody to wear a mask. I, I just, I was like, that is belittling. I can't do it. And then when it came time to start and to have to put people on leave without pay, I just, I, I just really couldn't do it. And I knew it was coming. I knew termination was next. And, and, you know, and then, you know, it just, we just hadn't got to that point yet. So I, uh, you know, so, but as that was going on, it was very stressful. But the one thing about me and you, and I'm glad that chief did that for you, but the w- w- one thing about me and you that I had so much support from the executives, from my peers, from my, uh, from my, uh, my, the people that I supervised, from the people that I worked with, you know, and I'm sure it was the same for you. You know, I, I hadn't got to the point in life ever where my work ethic or my work um, got you know, um, you know, like got, got hindered by any of my external pressure from anything, either at home or, or from the internal pressures of the job. And I, and I, and like, I, I always wonder like what would have happened if I didn't study for the test, if I didn't make a lot of arrests as a cop, if I wasn't an active sergeant, if I wasn't someone that was well-respected at this point in my career, um, how would that have been for me? You know, I'm sure it would have been a lot worse. I'm sure I would have been treated a lot differently, a lot worse. I'm sure if I had just been a rookie cop or, you know, maybe someone with four or five years on and I'm in this department that one day they don't want me to do anything and the next day they want me to do something and the day after they don't want me to do anything else. And I didn't, you know, and I didn't perform well. I wasn't looked at as, as a high performer. I think the job would be a lot different. I don't think you you would have had the support that I had, that Eric had, you know, um, you know, and and that could really make you feel like, because I'll tell you, I, I, I a lot of the time I felt like I was alone. And like you're saying, you felt like you were alone, but I did have people. I did even, even my commanding officer, he would talk to me every day, you know, try to get me to stay. I know the same with you. Um, you know, and everyone, you know, oh, don't do it. You know, you're here. This will blow over. Don't worry about it. Blah, 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 blah. Just take it. What's the big deal? Um, but, you know, like, again, I said, like, we were both well-respected at that point in our career. What if we only had two, three years on? We didn't have a lot of arrests. Nobody really knew who we were. I think the pressure would be a lot greater on you. You would truly, not only would you feel alone, you would be alone. You'd be alone on this job. You, you can't you couldn't have said it better because you're right. The, the the people that I worked for and the people that worked for me, they knew the type of person I was, just as you are. A go-getter, hard worker. I always got a five on my evaluation. So if anybody's watching, a five is the top you can get. You need the commanding officer's approval. 
So every year I was getting a five in my evaluation. It's the highest scores you could get. So same thing. My commanding officer was in contact with me. The guys that worked for me. Yes, because we had already built this report. So they were checking on me. But if I was an introverted type of person, and I think that's what you're kind of saying also, no one would have gotten in touch with me because th that's my point. So, but when it, and, and also when it comes to these relationships, just like, just like your wife, I'm not going to go home and, and tell my wife or my kids, you know, like things are going bad and show them weakness because they need me to be strong. Because if they see I'm weak, then they like, oh shit, everything's falling apart. It's the same thing. I, you know, the people that I work with that were close to me, the guys that worked for me, my commanding officer, I wasn't going to show them that, you know, behind closed doors, when I saw the stack of charges, I, you know, the world was just the, the way the world was on me. I didn't want to show them that. I didn't want to show them weakness. You know, they asked me how I'm doing. I always said, I'm good. Everything's good. Um, that's why I say that there has to be a system in place. There should have been some outside source from an inside source in the job in contact with me just to say, hey, how are you doing? Things like that. And, and fortunately, like I said, I was never suicidal. But, you know, I'm sure people could tell I wasn't as happy-go-lucky as I normally was. I was definitely much more quiet and reserved because I was sitting there trying to combat my own crime scene and, and combat these investigations. And, sit, and the biggest question that you remember I said in the podcast, and I mean it, I would sit there with a mountain of charges and the narratives from the civilian complaint. I mean, these things were like books. Each one was its own chapter. And I, I would read these things over and over. And I remember, John, I, I told you. So if the public's watching and the cops, if, if you're not sure, it's an 18-month statute of limitations from a civilian complaint. For the time of the incident or the time of arrest, they have 18 months to investigate it and come up with a disposition. So I had a calendar of every civilian complaint that I had against me at the time and watching the timeline to see, oh, the 18 months is up. I'm good. But it didn't matter anyway because they hit me with a crime exception. So they charged me with crimes instead because if the 18 months uh, – if you reach the 18-month statute of limitations, the Civilian Complaint Review Board can extend it. You and I heard this at the monthly meeting. They actually encouraged people, remember? And what they said is if, if the Civilian Complaint uh, Review Board determines that the act that you committed could be proven to be a crime in court – which I, that's so convoluted to this day. I, I don't even understand what that means. Well, they can then they'll charge you with the crime and exceed the 18 months. So I, I had all these internal pressures going on and I try not to show up, but there was no source to call me. And so what I did was I actually, I said, you know what, what I wanted to do is I feel the pressure and the weight of the world going on me. And I'm sure there's guys in the job that are going through that and they may not have the, the positive resources around me and I had outlets, you know, I would do jujitsu and boxing and go to the gym. And that would really help. And, and my friends are very positive and the guys that I work close with. So I, I volunteered to go to a couple of seminars with Papa and Papa is a police organization. If the public knows a police organization to help cops that are, are in need who may be facing suicide. And they taught me things to ask someone when they're, when they're hurting, you know, uh, things to ask them when they may be on the brink of suicide. And these are the things no one ever called me to ask me questions. And, and that's important. So I figured, you know what? I'm in this position. How can I help others? And that's what I did. So I went to some seminars. That really helped out a lot. And I would help other people. And that made me feel better also, uh, that to help others. Because I knew that if they were going something through something like myself, you know, it would be 
it would be tough. And, and, and also what helped, and I knew what was on my way out the door. But if I had five years on the job, I don't, I don't know. I, I, honestly, I don't know. I, I think things would have been different. Yeah, I, I just think everyone gets wrapped up in this job. You know, I had a bunch of good jobs before I became a cop. I was working since I was young, you know, so I just met a lot of people early on. I fortunate enough to run into the right people. I had some crazy jobs before I became a cop. Um, so I always knew that I could do other things. You know, I always knew that like I, you know, this job isn't the end all be all for me, but I would always, you know, I spoke to a lot of people that this job was the end all be all for them. And if I don't know what they would do if they lost the job. Um, I do believe they would be suicidal. I do believe they would probably kill themselves if they lost the job. You know, the whole thing is the whole life is geared around, oh, in 20 years, I'm going to retire. I'm going to get my pension or 25 or 27, whatever that number was. And, you know, it's devastating to have it taken from you. Like, you know, how it was taken from you, how it was taken from me. I know we both didn't want to leave the job, um, you know, but, you know, in a way we're kind of didn't, you know, we're still here doing it. Um, you know, we didn't go anywhere, you know, we're just a little bit more of a pain in the ass now. That's, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I never understood it. And, you know, I put, I put out a tweet and I think I put it on Instagram. A lot of people attacking me. I, and now I said was, this job is not worth your life. If you're, you know, I didn't say, I don't know exactly. If, if you're experiencing depression and all of these things and it's leading up to you feeling hopeless, quit. I don't care where you're at. Get the fuck off this job then. It's not worth your life. You know, you will be better for it. If the pressures of the job are getting you every day and you're getting to the point that you're having suicidal thoughts and we could clearly see that the job is not equipped to handle people experiencing PTSD, experiencing uh, hopelessness, experiencing trauma, experiencing trauma in their life. Um, we could clearly see that they're not capable of doing it. And, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is, but we did talk to somebody offline and, um, you know, he, he said basically that he called on himself. He didn't feel like he was in the right mind. I'm not going to give his scenario so that, you guys could identify him in case anybody knows him. But basically, he didn't feel safe to have his gun. He no longer wanted to have his gun. For whatever that reason was, he did not feel safe having his gun. He said it took everything in him to call up. He called up EAU. said it took everything in him because he kind of felt like that would be the end of his career. Um, that would be the end of, of all. So it took everything in him, but he just didn't feel comfortable. So he went ahead and did it. Um, he did give a big shout out to EAU. He said that the detective came to his house, spoke with him, you know, followed up with him for a few days. The job set him up with a psychiatrist. And after about seven visits, the psychiatrist said, Hey, listen, this isn't free. You're going to have to stop paying for this. Um, so at, at that point, you know, he, and he felt the therapy sessions were working. Um, but she didn't, the, the psychiatrist, the job hooked up with, didn't take our insurance. So every visit from that point on would have been $500. So he had to go out on his own and find his own psychiatrist, um, which he did. And while he's going through this process, you know, basically, I, I believe it was within, within a couple of days, he gets stuck right back on the TS. You know, so the guy's experiencing trauma. He's experiencing all these things. You know, I was a street cop. And listen, I'll tell you the one thing I hated. I did the desk as a sergeant, I think, three times. I fucking hated it. I would volunteer to be the patrol supervisor 
every night. Nobody wanted to do it. I was like, I'll do it. I don't want to go out. I don't want to stay in here. You know, and even as a cop, I never wanted to stay in. When I got hurt, if they were told me I'm limited, I'm like, no, put me back full duty. I'm fine. I'm good. I would get away from my injuries. Being inside to me was worse than being on the street. Uh, so if, if you're experiencing trauma, I don't think the, the telephone switchboard operator is the place for you to deal with other people's nonsense. Oh, my neighbor parked in front of my driveway. You effing cops don't do anything. You're getting a million calls. You're getting a bunch of weasels calling up, testing you. What, what was my favorite one? The Staten Island inspections lieutenant one time, he, called, he was calling and he was saying, I'm on the TS. And I'm not even on the TS. I have a collar. And the, and, and the lieutenant let me stay and wrap around. So he's like, you got to help me with the TS. I was like, no problem. So I'm, oh, I'm, I, I had a collar. I'm staying just so I could go to court. And I'm picking up the phone. And the guy calls up. And now he had just called me about something that he had an issue with, whatever the hell it was. Um, I forget whatever it was. But he had just called me. So I already knew, I already knew this guy's voice. And he asked me, how do I apply to... How do I apply to, to the NYPD? So I, I, it took everything in me to be like, well, Lieutenant, you're already on the job, so you can't reapply, but for anybody else. But it took everything in me. So instead, I just went super over the top. And I was like, well, there are numerous ways you could join the NYPD. And <laughs> let me tell you, if you want to come in here right now, I'll help you out. Or you want to come in here? And I just went completely over the top to the point he was like, okay, okay. He didn't even want to be on the phone with me anymore because he would have had to type up his, his five <laughs> with all the stuff. I'm like, days, yeah. I'm like, you know, I mean, so, but I remember, you know, I'm like, this is, you know, I, I get, I get, I get, we need checks and balances and stuff. But what, but my point is, what I'm saying is like, you're there. You don't feel right. You don't know where your life is going. You just got your gun removed. You're sitting at the TS where you work. And I'm sorry, this fucking job has more leaks than anything anybody knows. Everybody knows what your situation is. And you're fucking sitting there. And it's got to be eating you even worse because the job's horrible. Now you're not making overtime. And you're doing just as much work as you were out there. The volume of work is still the same. And by the way, TS is a very dangerous place. So all you that sit there with, with no vest on, with no gun, I mean, I think you're an idiot. Oh, you know, you know, I, part of the problem, I, I, I think. So, and that's th this is why I, this is why I made that that statement. So, policing, it's a complex job. It's a difficult job. It's a tough job. But when we take this job, we understand that we're going out in the street. We're going to help the public by potentially facing the most violent perpetrators, especially in a metropolis like New York City. So we're prepared for that. We understand that. I mean, I, I say to this day, there's something special about every police officer on the job, New York City or nationwide. There's something about you to take this job. So this it says there's something in your heart. There's definitely something about you. So we expect that. We're prepared for that. And we understand that. We understand it's going to be a rough road. And the reason why I say the NYPD, though, is the silent killer. Because the internal pressures of the job, we personalize them. Because the NYPD is supposed, is supposed to be a family. So you're facing these pressures from externally, from outside in the field. But then internally, you're being judged by your peers. You're being judged by your supervisors. And, and no one is more critical 
than other cops about cops, even more critical and more judgmental than the public. And John, I know you definitely agree with that. And in addition to that, you have all those pressures, like you said, no time off, forced overtime, details that, that are forced upon you. You're working in the pandemic, no days off, 12 hour tours, you're, you're commuting to and from work, snow days, when everyone else has a school day or they can't get to work, you got to get there. And on top of that, there's no appreciation. Now, while you're working, you have a civilian complaint if you're doing proactive police work that you have to answer for. You did a TRI. You self-reported that you had to use force. You have to go for a GO-15, which is an investigation interview with, the, with inspections. Could be housing, could be patrol. You have an interview with internal affairs. You have a lawsuit that you have to face. So it's all these pressures. You have a court case, and the district attorney doesn't believe what you're saying, or you didn't get the paperwork in time because of the new discovery laws. So you have all these pressures, and I think the problem with those pressures, which is why it's the silent kill, kill with the NYPD, is because these issues we personalize, because this is supposed to be our family. And you're getting all the pressure. You say, wow, these are the people that don't care about us. And I say this all the time. There is no organization that eats its own like the NYPD does. The NYPD eats their own. Yeah, they absolutely do. And I mean, and a lot of it too was just sheer incompetence, like sheer incompetence in the people that they place in positions that matter too, you know, and, 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 and that adds another level too. you like, you know, I know, you know, everyone knocks the, uh, the district surgeons or whatever. I, I, I hear a lot of things about the district surgeons. I was never really out sick much in my career until I got pneumonia from COVID. But other than that, I was never really out long-term sick. So I don't, I don't know the pressures, but I did, I, I had to go see them. And when I went to go see them, I'm sitting there and I'm like, holy shit, I'm looking at this guy and there's a million people in the office. And I'm like, what the, f I'm like, this is what goes on down here. And I'm looking at the district surgeon and this dude is completely overwhelmed. Like, I don't think that he knew anybody that was there that day. There was supposed to be another district surgeon there. I just heard him talking to the guy at the front desk. And it was basically like, all right, you're going to do like the cardio, whatever it is for the heart. You're going to be the guy that does the regular six and you're going to be any, you're going to deal with all the psychs. So he's basically going to deal with like 60, 70 people that day. And he was, the guy was completely overwhelmed. And I was like, wow. I was like, how could he possibly know you or care about you? And there you are. You got injured. You know, if you're not a fucking scammer, because there are guys that are a bunch of fucking scammers. They got more surgeries than <laughs> oh, I know to do it. They've been on, you know, they just got on this job. And so I'm not, I'm not debunking that, but I'm saying you actually got hurt from doing your job or you're actually sick or you're actually going sick or something. You're pregnant. You know, I heard horror stories from pregnant women. Me too. Me too. Horror stories. Okay. Fucking horror stories. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I heard they got a little bit more time recently, which I was glad about. But uh, um, they did, they did, and, and that was overdue. And, and the, the only reason they got that, the only reason they got more time now is because of the Family Court Act leave that was enacted in New York City. That's the only reason, because with the Family Court Act, they get more time than they're for actually an NYPD employee. So that's the only reason. To the women out there, if you listen to this, that's the only reason that they got it. They didn't care about you. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. No, I mean, I, I, I don't know how single mothers are police officers. I don't. I know I wouldn't be able to do it. I know I wouldn't be able to do it. I have no idea how they do it. So, you know, big shout out to all the single mothers out no, there. No, I agree with you. I just want to say, like, that, and the job, 
uh, is really behind the times. And they do a terrible job of accommodating the women when they're breastfeeding. Because I remember I had, I had a cop working for me. She's now a sergeant. Uh, she was breastfeeding. I think, you know, she had just come, come back to work. And we had a detail. And it, it's the most insane thing. So I, she was on her post. I, I, I would have to, I was taking her back to the, I said, listen, I'll take you back. So I took her back to the precinct. And at the time I was working in the, in the six, seven, they were supposed to detail us out to help out with uh, the George Floyd protest. But we went to the six, seven, you know, you know how that is. They send you to different locations to, uh, to uh, combat shootings. Meanwhile, it's all the time for George Floyd or something else. So, and I took it to the precinct and there's supposed to be, a room where they would be isolated and somewhere comfortable that they can actually uh, breastfeed. But I remember ask, asking the guys at the desk, they're like, uh, anybody know where the room is? Or uh, No one knew, and they had no idea about it. And when they finally found the room, she told me afterwards, it was like it was like a, like in a location in the basement where it was like boxes all over the place. It was like they, they kind of like just like made like a makeshift room in the last five minutes. It was disgusting. I was like, this is after even after a lawsuit. I was like, this is how we're treating these women on the job. And then after that, she has to get sued up again, get back to her detail, and then you know, then when she's lactating again, I gotta pick, you know, take her back. I mean, I was like, man, I, this is ridiculous. I mean, I honestly felt sorry for her. They they were so, so insensitive about it. There's no training on this job. There was just a you know a news article within the job, a, a memo of of what locations, you know, it, it was totally, I thought it was just totally incentive and they could care, they, they could care less. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. When I, when I, when I first became Sergeant, I, I wasn't really, I didn't, I didn't know anyone. Like I didn't have any, any females on my job that would, that were on, like on my platoon or whatever in my squad that were breastfeeding. But like, I think I would have been pretty stupid to it. You know, so you're coming in and like, oh, I'm, I'm, what am I worried about? I'm worried about the jobs. I'm worried about all these other things. So, oh, I just got to go pump. I would, I, I don't even think I would have known really what, what they were talking about. Um, so I, I do agree with you that there, there should be some training. I mean, you know, no. I didn't, like, I really didn't know about it until I heard the issue. And then I thought about it and I was like, wow, this, that's fucked up, you know, um, for those of you that don't know though, and I'm sure you guys all made fun of it, but the lactation pods. I'm the guy that found those, and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> really? yeah, that's <laughs> funny you brought that up. Yeah, actually, you ever I, you ever go inside one? It's actually pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm the one I found it. I presented it. That's how we got them. We we purchased it through that company. Um, yeah. Um, so that, that came. But out. how come? But how come not every precinct has it? Like I said, we went to six, seven precinct. They didn't have it. I, I don't. I don't really know. I don't know. I thought we were going to get them for everywhere. I did for the ones that we could get anywhere accessible. Like we, if it was as long as access, uh, accessible, the fifth precinct, you know, I don't know what they're doing that the build, the building was built in 1851. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's fully attached on both sides. There's zero. Points. Mess. I don't even know what they do there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know why, why they didn't do that everywhere. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's just, it's just, again, it's just, and, and that's just another stress on, on, on police officers, right? That's the, the female aspect of it. Right. And then all your kids sick, like that, that was the thing that always got me. Like I, I was always fortunate enough that like my wife 
was, was kind of flexible and her schedule was flexible and she was able to take my children to the doctors and stuff like that. Like, I don't know what I would, what the hell I would do. Like if I, you know, I would, you know, especially when you're a supervisor and now you're a female supervisor, you're going in, there's two sergeants. Like you're not getting off, like you're not getting the day off, you know, you can't switch your tour. You know, if you're not, if you're not in the inn, like, I don't know what the hell I would have, would have did on patrol. I mean, you know, Patrol really gets shit on. Patrol, housing, transit, they get shit on. You know, they really do. Patrol the worst out of everybody, though. Absolute worst. Like, I think patrol precincts, they do all the work and they get treated like complete garbage. There's zero downtime. There's zero, you know, these guys aren't even getting a meal. Like, it's no, ridiculous. Terrible. Ridiculous. Well, and it's, well, it and then if you're on patrol and you have no networking, there's zero motivation to do anything either. At, at that point, I mean, you're on patrol. They're kicking you around. They can care less about you. But yet, and you and I know it, and it proves it now with this mass exodus, that's the first position that has to be maintained and has to be filled. And that's why to the detectives out there in the squad and the units out there, you got to support your patrol guys right now, and you got to pay attention to this mass exodus because if you don't, guess what? You're in the detective squad. You're a first grader investigating cases. You know what? If the mass exodus is that big, you're going to be riding sector at whichever precinct you're working in the squad. That's going to come first before your investigations. Before you work on your case, sector at has to be filled. Absolutely. I mean, look at look at that caseload now. You know, that caseload is just flying through the roof. You know, and, and, and again, I, I, there's a lot of bullshit going on on patrol. And I'll say like, you know, it's easy to knock like the COs and it's easy to knock the lieutenants and the sergeants, but there's a lot of bullshit with the cops too. And a, a lot of that stems from they're all fucking rookies, including the sergeants and the lieutenants. They don't really understand how the job's supposed to work or how to, it, I don't, I don't want to use de-escalate, but how to, how to fucking actually, how to maintain and handle situations and what being a professional police officer means and being a cop and being accountable for your sector and, and, worrying about your, your your brothers and sisters out there in the other sector and making sure they get meal and making sure you get meal and you're taking care of each other. And when you hear a fucked up job, be like, you know what? I'm going over that. Even though I'm not, even though it's, I, I don't have to because I'm on this other bullshit or it's going to make me, you know, it's going to cause me another hour of paperwork. You know, there's a lot of things that you need experience on. And that's a lot of the problem with patrol too, like what's going on when people are complaining and the way they're talking to people and the way they're, they're interacting in situations. And I don't think a lot of guys understand that job. I think if I, if I, I'm telling you right now, I think if I sat down with, with, with guys with uh, uh, five years and under, and I asked them, describe me your job, tell me what your ethos is, tell me what kind of cop you are. I don't think, I don't think 90% would be able to answer that. Well, hundred percent, John, I couldn't agree with you more. I used to say it all the time. As the anti-crime sergeant, especially a special operations lieutenant, because as a special operations lieutenant, it was under the de Blasio era. And what I saw with these new cops, and these new cops became sergeants, it was the blind leading the blind. And I don't blame them, because there was zero effort on training. There was zero effort on how to do police work. That wasn't important anymore. What was important was to make sure, did you have two community visits for your tour? During your tour, especially when the body cameras came out, did you activate your body cameras properly, are you implementing the body cameras, then we know the paperwork is constantly evolving and changing. So as soon as they get to understand the paperwork, there's new paperwork that comes out. So instead of one page, now it's four pages. Do they understand the paperwork? And then when it came to the domestic incident reports, 
every time they respond to a domestic. Now there's something else. Now you have to fill out these five new captions. Now you have to confer with the field intelligence office. Now you have to inquire if there's guns. You have to do gun checks, domestic violence. So they just kept pouring more and more intricate details for a patrol cop. So, and if they don't do all these things, then they have to potentially face discipline. So there's no effort on how to actually be a cop, which should be number one, dealing with the public, making sure they're safe, and having a relationship with the public. And that's and, and here's the irony, I always say. De, de Blasio wanted to, um, to amend and create a relationship with the public and the police officers. And all, this, all these policies just retracted from that. We lost that relationship. You couldn't have a relationship anymore because you're going to a job. You have to make sure you have all the paperwork. You have to make sure that you on your phone that you have all the details of that job. And then it goes into the actual report and that your body camera coincides with it. And then if you had to apply any force, did you fill out the right report? Did you self-notify yourself? Did you notify your sergeant who knew and now has to respond to the, to the job? Because you can't make your own decisions and think outside the box because the job is being micromanaged. So we totally retracted from actually being cops. And the job created this. The de Blasio era created this. And those cops, not to their fault, they had zero training. They became sergeants. And sometimes I would watch these roll calls and say, I honestly, I felt bad for these cops. I said, you know, they don't even know what you just said. They have no idea what their job is. They missed a legit experience because there's no vision. There's zero leadership. And sometimes I would go in there and I would give speeches and try to give some training. And they looked at me like, where is this guy from Mars? Like, what is he talking about? You know, why is he not talking about all well, the domestic incident report? And he's just captioning that caption. You know, I was actually talking about tactics and how to talk to people and what to look for, observation skills, a trained eye. But they were so focused on making sure that they had five dots on the report and two lines because that was became important because they were getting pressure from, from above them to make sure that all these things are filled out because that's what became the importance. Yeah, and for them too, the rules are always changing, right? It's always changing. It's always changing. Do this this week? Nah, forget about it this week. I mean, how many fucking stupid apps and things came and went in the last oh, few yeah. years? I like, I, 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 you know, an FYI, I never did any of them. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I just, yeah, I just couldn't. I, I, I got to a point where I was like, this is just fucking retarded. Especially the one where they said, like, if you help an old lady cross the street, like, write it in there. And then your supervisor will like it. I'm like that. Like it's direct conflict. With, it's it's in direct conflict with my beliefs. Like my beliefs are you don't do things to get a reward. You don't you don't help an old lady cross the street because you want to see you want everyone on the street to see you do it. You do it when you do that. You do the things that are right all the time, not when people are looking. And that and that's part of my religion. I was like, I'm not doing that. It's but it's, it's fucking blasphemy. It's uh, fucking ridiculous. And and it's you know I, I I it was craft I think craft craft yeah yeah I, dude I'm sorry I gotta laugh because when I got to PSA seven as the as the as the lieutenant immediately I started the special operations lieutenant I basically came there on a contract one of the COs I worked be, with before as an anti crime sergeant he liked the way I worked with the teams so I went to PSA seven as a special operations lieutenant and I saw that they didn't have the metal board so. I made myself the chairman of the metal board for so the entire eight years I was there. I ran the metal board, and, and I, I just have to laugh and say because some of the cops, they went to some jobs. The job wasn't even over yet, and, and they would call me like, "Do you think I get a medal for this?" I'm like, "Are you kidding me? 
Ishti not even done with the job yet. <laughs> I used to oh, laugh. Tell him to write so, Pat Lynch up though, too, so that he so that his his medals aren't fake anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the stuff the guys would write up, they're like, dude, did you really write this up? Yeah. And, you know, because I had a board, so we would vote on it. It, it was always myself. Another supervisor, and there was three. We would have three cops, and we would always rotate the cops. I would do it on a quarterly basis, so we'd always rotate the cops. So everyone had a chance to read them, and then they got to see that they, they would read them like, "You made a trespass call. You, you, you put it in front of a ward. Are you kidding me? You want to get a medal for that?" So, you know, it, it was just funny. Some of the stuff the guys wrote up. Some of the stuff the guys wrote up. Also, there's a flip side. Some of the stuff I would read like. Man, this is impressive. I didn't. How come someone else? How come this didn't come from another higher up? Why did this cop have to write this up himself? Yeah. So it, it definitely it worked, and there was definitely a dichotomy between it. It was definitely worked both ways. We definitely need a better system to to award guys uh, properly instead of having them self report. Yeah, that that's one thing I never agreed with that I have to write up my own stuff. I worked with a few guys that wanted to write up for whatever they were doing various tests, but I'll tell you that my best college, I never got a fucking medal for it. I was too lazy to do it. And I'm like, if it wasn't that big of a deal, why should I do it? And I've won a few Comstat awards. I've been honored by my congressional, uh, you know, uh, district, whatever representative state assembly. I won cop of the month a bunch of times. Uh, I was put up for cop of the year a couple of times. Um, all stuff like that solved a ton of patterns, and I don't have medals to reflect that. Um, and I did when I when I made sergeant. What I said is, I'm like, I'm gonna write my guys up. They're not gonna have to write themselves up. And I'll be honest with you, I was so busy and so overwhelmed, I never fucking did it. But I did. The one thing I did do was I was like, after they made a good collar and everything was over. I would be like, all right, stay in for two hours and uh, and write yourselves up. You know, I would, I would, I gave them time to do it. Um, you know, so I, I, I did. I guess in a way, I did it, but I didn't write it. I said I was going to write it, and I didn't do it in my head. I didn't tell anybody else that. Um, and I, and I didn't do it, but I did give them time to write themselves up and do that because you know, and I, and I always, and I would always, you know, let them know what great of a job they did, and, and you know. Because I'm, I'm sure I let them know how many times they failed with vouchering, you know, <laughs> and counting and all the shit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, um, but yeah, that, that's one thing that should definitely change. That's something like you, you know, you, there should be more recognition for the great work we, instead of all the scrutiny when things just go wrong. You know, um, well, I was the chairman of the metal board for PS7 because I, because I created. It. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this: has to be a better system because it's too subjective. Right, it was my perspective. What I thought, along with the, the, the you know those voting with me, we went by the majority. But you know, for me to be one of those votes, it was my perspective. What I thought was a good rest, what I thought was just an intellectual uh, application to something, a great investigation, or something was a great rescue. I mean, it's all open to perspective because what I thought was was a great great job, someone else thought ah, it's just okay. So it's just way too subjective. We don't, and even the criteria of the patrol guide for medals and awards. I, I know you read it. If you when you read it, it's very vague. Like for instance, if you're going to get a, an MPD, which is a meritorious meritorious police police duty, it says, you know, a, a significant accomplishment. What does that mean? Anything you do could be a significant significant accomplishment or achievement or 
uh, if you get accommodations because you put yourself in, in grave danger. You put yourself in grave danger every day by putting that uniform on. So, it, you know, it's very convoluted. It's very ambiguous. And uh, it's not reflective of, of what a good cop is. Unfortunately, people see some guys have racks, and they may very well deserve it, or they just, they're the guys who took the time out to write it up. And some guys have nothing. <laughs> right? I mean... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, me and this kid, we were working together. He's retired now, too. But I still won't spit his name out. But we uh, we grabbed this guy that was a fucking citywide burglar. He closed a citywide burg pattern. He took the collar. I didn't take the collar. I just assisted with it, right? Which, again, <laughs> I'll say, I mean, I was there. I did a lot of the work. Right, of course. You know, and I didn't get any credit for any of this. But he was pissed. He wanted an MPD for the fucking collar. So he was pissed. He's like, I'm getting a fucking MPD. This is fucking bullshit. Blah, 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 blah. So he goes to the CEO's office. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's like, I saw the, this guy fucking confessed to 50 burglars. I saw the citywide burglary pattern. All of my observation. It was an observation picked up. I linked it all back. I fucking initiated the briefing. I got him talking. I made him feel comfortable. All the shit. And the fucking CEO says to him, the, the metal board only issued him an EPD, and which is excellent police duty, which is the one under MPD. And the CO goes, I'll give you an LPD. And he goes, what's that? And he's like, it's lucky police work. Get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> That's fucking great. Yeah. Oh, man. I wish I would have saved some of those write-ups. Some of those write-ups are hysterical. Yeah, I yeah. used to tell the guys, we used to sit and have the metal board. Yeah, yeah. And somehow read out like, throw this in a pile. Thanks for playing. Like, that's your freaking job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Are you went to an aisle one call? <laughs> yeah, I had guys right up there. Went to an aisle one call, and a lady pointed out said that guy Robbie, and they put him in cuffs and and they wrote up like, you want a medal for that? That's your job. Yeah. That, that that's every day. You're supposed yeah. to do that. And they would write it up like, and then they would get mad at me. They would get mad at me. They would get pissed like, oh, I, we don't get a medal for that. Like, oh, you you should get you should give the medals because we know we got the test because they were points. Yeah. Like, well, dude, if I just give it to you, you water it down. It should mean something. Yeah. That's why sometimes when you look at some some of these people, I mean, they got racks that are going over their shoulder. I'm like, uh, I'm usually kind of suspect for that. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, that's a guy. That's a guy that probably didn't do police work. Because if you had the time to write do all those write ups, you're not doing police work. Let's be honest. He might be writing old ladies, fucking ten songs yeah. a day to old ladies because they're three miles over the speed limit. Get them done. Go back. You know. You know. <laughs> I like to write up my CCRVs. Each you one. Said, you should get them <laughs> Actually, Midnight Platoon is doing a uh, jobs dead medal for 2022. So oh, that's I said, great. Uh, they said, what, what, what awards should be there? So I said, no jab, no job, try recidivist and <laughs> substantiated CCRB. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think all three of those should go on that. that thing. <laughs> Maybe they can put my picture in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> 50A, 50A, baby. 50A. Yeah. Metal. I got to play 50. You know what? I'm going to play the lotto. I got to play that number 50. Yeah. Is it 50 numbers? I haven't played lotto in years. Is there a number 50 on it? Lotto ticket? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you do 50. All right. I got to play. So, uh, 
2023, Eric Adams said, is the year to get stuff done for New Yorkers. And he's gonna make he's gonna make 2023 our Aaron Judge year. Oh, okay. It's gonna be our Aaron Judge year. So anyone that doesn't know, there's a there's a there's a rumor floating around that the Yankees were using a different baseball than the rest of the league. So I I think that's a good analogy because I think Eric Adams is fucking playing in his own world too. You know, so if that turns out to be true. I mean, that's uh, that that's going to be something right there, that he didn't break the home run record with the ball that the rest of the league was using. Um, supposedly, that, that ball's only used during the home run uh, the home run derby and one other time. I don't know if it's true or not, but I just thought that was funny for him to say that. It's going to be Aaron Judge, yeah, 2020. The guy's done nothing, but, but get stuff done. You know, you know it's funny because I get texts all the time. When there's a picture of Adams doing something, and he's wearing the NYPD hat. Cops I know, or just people I know, they text it to me because they know I, I get mad when he's wearing the, the when he's wearing that hat. It drives me crazy. Yeah, Why yeah. is he always wearing that NYPD cap? I mean, he was not a cop, please. And before he was mayor, we know he wasn't wearing that hat. Get that hat off. And so they always text it to me because it just annoys me. Like I look at it like ah, like they got me. <laughs> like, shit. All right. Crazy. Would you? Think- my day. What did you think about Madry at the at the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce's uh, cha- uh, Manhattan Chamber Chamber of Commerce's uh, crime summit that they had? They still haven't released the video, so when they get the video, I'm going to clip that out and we'll discuss all those things. But what did you think about? I, I, uh, I haven't seen the video, but based on the article, I gave him a shout out on Twitter because I'm hot on the Chiefs. Honestly, I've been asked for a Chief to stand up to to lead the guys and show that they care. So. I have to seek the truth, right? That's, that's what we got to do on this podcast is, is be truthful. So I've been harsh on these Chiefs, Kemper for sp- spitting out lies, and these other Chiefs have been just being total cowards. And I've been tough on Madry, too, on some of his interviews. But in this one, I gave him a shout-out saying, you know, this is what we need to see. We need to see leadership. We need to see more of it. But, listen, I'm still not at the point that, you know, that it's all kisses and hugs, honestly. That's great. It's a start. It's in the right direction. But – we also need to see action. The words sounded great from what, what the article said, that you know that he's going to stand up for his cops. I mean, if, if anybody doesn't know what the argument was, but the argument was that the cops are not doing enough to make arrests. And what Chief Madry said was actually, you know, from I didn't see the video, but what they said in the article, that he said, well, obviously his cops are making arrests because they're – getting repeat offenders so which they're being let out because of the bail reform so if they're not making arrests how are they getting repeat offenders so i like it chief madry listen thumbs up thumbs up brother i appreciate that's exactly what we what we need to see and we need to see more of it i gave you a shout out on twitter so please that's what we want to see that's leadership by supporting your guys supporting your men and women they need to hear that but going further also we need to see action on how you're going to support them. But it's a start in the right direction. It's more than I've seen anybody do lately. I, 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 what do you think, honestly? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, again, we don't work for these fucking politicians. And I know Eric Adams will be pissed and you might get a transfer. But if, you, if you, you, you know, he's sitting across from Jeffrey Dinowitz. The guy only, he wants to vaccinate. He wants to poke holes in all your kids. He wants to, he was removed religious exemptions from children. He wants to remove religious exemptions from, uh, from, uh, 
from colleges and from work. So all you guys that do have approved religious exemptions, Jeffrey Dinowitz wants to remove that from you. He's got his son, the village idiot on city council, Eric Dinowitz. The kid's a complete moron. Um, they couldn't find anything else better for him. So they sent him to the land of misfit toys, heavily funded him. He's in, he's in city council, but all of, all of Dinowitz's bills are violate the constitution. Every single one of them. He wants to make the flu shot required to go to school. He wants to make the COVID-19 vaccine required to go to school. These are all current legislation that Jeffrey Dinowitz wrote. Um, he is an abysmal man. You know, I don't know who supports this guy. He doesn't believe in religious liberty. He doesn't believe in the Constitution. He doesn't believe in the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. I mean, he stated it clearly violates his oath by just the legislation that he that he supports and and the legislation that he writes. Um, so that's that's who Jeffrey Denowitz is. He's the you know he sits on on like the Health and Safety Board or whatever it is on State Assembly, and I'm like, why is he at a crime summit? Why is this guy at a crime summit? What, what, he doesn't know anything about public health in general. I don't even know why he sits on, on those boards and he drafts legislation. Cause I would love to sit down and speak with him one day and see exactly why he feels that the COVID-19 vaccine is necessary for children who are largely unaffected by this. I would love to hear that rationale. Cause I guarantee it would look the same way that Sanjay Gupta looked when he sat down with Joe Rogan while Joe Rogan was wearing a Cypress Hill shirt and completely abused him, completely abused him. Guy had no mm -hmm. argument whatsoever. It looked the same exact way. Um, but I'm like, why is he sitting here at speaking about public safety and crime and what the police are doing and, and how the police should handle it and how we should address crime? This guy has no clue. He has no zero clue about public safety. I would rather have a, a, a citizen, a resident who lives there, sitting there, who 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 doesn't who who might who will have the same understanding of public safety of as Jeffrey Dinowitz, but they're affected by it. Jeffrey Dinowitz is not affected by it. I live here. I'm dealing with it firsthand. So this is what I'm seeing. I might not understand That's your job and I might not understand the criminal justice system, but I understand what my reality is. The resident's reality is not Jeffrey Dinowitz's reality. So he doesn't need to be to be there whatsoever. But what we're seeing is we're seeing COs buttoning up with city council people and state assembly people. Now I'm not saying to not be respectful to people. I am. But when someone starts telling you about your job, that that's the end of the respect at that point. When someone starts telling you that your cops are racist, that your cops aren't doing anything, that you need to understand you, we should be attacking root causes all these keywords, your guys need to learn de-escalation more. Your guys need to have to learn how to do this. And by guys, I mean guys and girls, right? But when they're saying this, you should exactly be saying what, what Chief Madry is saying. And you know what? If Telling the truth, if people don't like it, they don't like it. It is what it is. It's the truth. Hey, listen, my guys are out there doing it. I can't help. I can't help that these discovery laws, they're getting all these cases are getting thrown out before they even get there. And then in the most egregious cases, bail reform comes into play and we're throwing them right back out on the street. I mean, and again, like I said, we've been saying it forever. I've been saying it for a year now. I've been saying it for actually two years now. I've been saying there's zero prosecution in New York City. And it took two years for us to finally get an article, for someone to actually dig into the numbers. Because you remember when the Brooklyn DA's comms director attacked me on Twitter? Oh, yeah. And yeah. He, he didn't have the numbers. 
He didn't know the numbers of for Brooklyn. He didn't know. He didn't know the. Yeah, and there were simple questions too. You didn't attack him. Simple questions, and he couldn't come up with the numbers. And uh, what, what was his response again? That was a stupid answer. What, what did he say? He basically fell back on well, the DA's office was the DA's office was complying with the law, so there was nothing that he could do. These people were out. You know? No, did he say they would meet indictment or something or something like that? I gotta remember. Um, no, he said that, uh, yeah, no, he basically said they were out on the, they were out on the street because he, he, I don't remember the exact wording, but he was, he was saying like these people are out on the street. It was, it was someone who was, who got arrested for shooting with an illegal firearm, right, was right. Not convicted of it, was out on the street, then shot at somebody else weeks later and, and struck like a six-year-old child, uh, unintentionally. And, and on um, what I asked was how many arrests does he have previously? Why was he on the street? And he couldn't that answer yep. questions. And what he said was, well, you know, due to due to the law, we had to release him. He made bail. What's wrong with that? That's like, right. I'm an idiot. I don't know the law. And I'm like, no, I know. I know what the law is, but the law isn't correct. The law is the law is why we're here. You know, and then I asked him about, you know, what's what's uh, what's uh, the prosecution rate on on gun charges? What, how many of these people are remanded? How many of them? Um, how many of the cases are thrown out? And he, he didn't have the numbers for Brooklyn. The, the, the Brooklyn, the district attorney, Brooklyn comms director, communications director, didn't have those numbers, which, of course, he did. He just didn't want to release them. So, no, uh, listen, like I said, I, 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 applaud chief, I applaud Chief Manager, but in this case, I will say also, though, is, listen, Adams is his boy, so he could probably get away with doing that. I mean, could another chief do that? I don't know. It's kind of questionable, honestly. Again, like I said... At some point, at some point, I mean, like, you know, it really starts there. If you're willing to bend and you're willing to hear that your guys are racist and your guys aren't doing nothing, I mean, maybe no, don't be a commanding officer. Then. You know, if you're willing to take that, if you're willing to take that from, from an incompetent elected official who really has zero life experience. I mean, most of these people never held a job. Most of them never held a job. So I'm not going to sit there and and I'll be respectful to you, but I, I'll be respectful in an honest manner, you know, just same way that we're respectful with everybody that we disagree with. I'm not, I'm not going to attack you for, for believing something, but I'm not going to let you shit all over me, my profession and, and the men and women who serve under me when it's a complete lie and actually belittle you too. Cause what he's saying is you're not doing anything. Your guys aren't doing anything. You're not doing anything. When I mean, arrests, arrests are still getting made every day. Unfortunately, nothing's happening other than guys are getting CCRBs and getting their careers destroyed. That's the only, the only people held accountable in the arrest situation today is a police officer. And it's ironic that, that, so here we are now, we're dealing with the saying the cops aren't doing enough. They're not making arrests. But prior to the bail reform, the politicians complain that the police department is always trying to arrest their way out of a situation. And that we're not, right? We're not getting to the root causes and we're not using social programs to help them. It's just always attack on the cops. They can't decide what they want. The bottom line is, and this is my message to politicians, that's the job of the cops. I don't care what programs we have out there. Number one, I'll say it to this day, we still carry steel, metal, bracelets, handcuffs on our belts. Our number one job, our number one mission is to arrest perpetrators 
persons of interest subjects to bring them to court so that they could face prosecution, right, from Lady Justice blindly with no identity politics. That's the way it's supposed to be. That is our number one mission. We make arrests to get information, to make more arrests, to keep the public safe. That's the number one mission. We can have all these fancy programs. It doesn't matter. It all goes back. That's the roots of police work. They talk about root causes. That's the root foundation of police work. 100%. That's what we're there for. We're there to maintain order. So at the same time, they're saying that cops don't make arrests. They, the guy, same guy is also saying we need to get rid of all the jails and nobody should ever go to jail. And just like you said, we can't arrest our way out of this. Oh, yes, we can, motherfucker. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We could deter criminal behavior. We could scare the youth seeing the people that we already lost into the rivers of violence, into the many rivers that they flew into. The ones that are, are we completely lost already, that the city already failed because of all the garbage we did and all the times we held them unaccountable and said, you know what? It's not your fault that the stray bullet that you shot, even though you were arrested five times with a gun, it's not your fault. Society failed you. Yeah, society failed you because you should have been in jail, motherfucker. You should have been in jail for five years and then you wouldn't have got an opportunity to ha shoot somebody else. And you would have learned your lesson. And maybe at that point, you could have found God or you could have understood what's acceptable in, in society. Um, you know, so th their messaging is, is all over the place. And again, mm -hmm. that leads back to the low morale. Because it's like, well, if my if my if the majority of leadership doesn't stand up for us, yeah. even even in just even in just verbally. Right. Because I, I applaud Madri for what he did, but it was the easiest thing to do. I mean, if he didn't do it, honestly, I would be I would be, I would have his video on rerun right now. I would just keep playing it. If he didn't if he didn't stand up for the cops and I'm going to go through that further to make sure that there wasn't times that should have been when when they released that video. I'm hundred percent going to dissect that video. Um, I, I did put out what he said at that one time frame, but I mean that's yeah. the easiest thing to do. So I applaud him. We need more of it. Hundred percent agree with you. Um, and then what, what else were we talking about? The discovery laws. An article came out uh, from Jim Quinn. I don't know who that is. Um, New York's discovery laws. Are designed are designed to let criminals go free, right? And that's what that's what we keep saying, right? All of this pro-criminal, anti-victim, anti-police legislation is meant to cause crime to grow crime, right? We, we keep saying, I keep saying it. We're growing criminals. We're not. We're not. We're finding the root cause of violence, and we're throwing water and miracle grow on it. We're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just do whatever you want. There's no consequences. Life's free. And 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 now all the officers have the de-escalation on them. So we don't have to worry about you ever, your feelings ever getting hurt, you possibly ever getting physically hurt, hurt or anything. You know? Crazy. Um, you, you know, before you, I just want to say before what you said is 100% true. We talk about law morale. When it comes to the bail reform, I remember creating a tactical plan after getting an I-card. Let me even circle back before that. I mean, we knew when I was the PSA 7 Special Operations Lieutenant, we knew every gang member. We knew every shooter. We knew every victim of every shooter. We knew every robbery recipient. We, we did our homework. We knew the lay of the land for PSA 7. 
inside and out. So when an I-card was dropped for the squad and that a perpetrator was good to go, so my cops watching, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For the public, anyone, if you're not a cop, you don't understand the terminology, what that means is the detective squad did their investigation. We now have probable cause to make an arrest. And a message goes through the department. It's called an I-card, which means intelligence card, that we have probable cause to make this arrest. That means good to go. You can go out and grab them. We will create our tactical plan and go out and get a violent perpetrator. And we will arrest this person for a shooting. Probable cause. What does probable cause mean? Reason to believe they committed. We had video in many cases of someone that shot someone else. We locked them up. They go through the system. They're out. Within a month or two, I have a civilian complaint and a lawsuit. Sometimes one or the other or both. From this violent perpetrator. And then you know what happens after that? They go out and commit another shooting. And then this violent perpetrator gets arrested, sometimes by my team again, or sometimes by another team. And they go through the system, and they get let out again. But you know what doesn't stop? That civilian complaint still gets substantiated, and this person is out there still shooting others. Still shooting other people. But the civilian complaint is still being investigated and still being substantiated. I was on trial for a substantiated civilian complaint. And that complainant, which they, which was actually a violent perpetrator, was in Rikers for trying to stab a Parkchester peace officer. And while this violent perpetrator was in Rikers, he stabbed the correction officer. And civilian complaint review board still push forward. So we know that Civilian Complaint Review Board, what they were bragging about at the monthly meeting, is how they have their own prosecution, their own attorneys represented. So they could have said at that point, you know what, we're going to dismiss this case. But no, they continued with it. That hurts morale. I mean, I, I it just adds to the, the sea of it. Like, do I, I don't know. Do cops care? Yeah, they do. You, you, went, you went above and beyond. Do they want to see death when it's extremely violent that's the stuff that really gets people like the real violent offenders that you're talking about but even even like the low level shit like the car break-ins right when you're locking a guy up for breaking into a car or now we don't even lock people up for stealing from a store anymore but if you're locking a guy from breaking into a car and you locked him up a hundred times that year I mean, eventually you're starting to say, what the fuck is going on here? Like, what are we even doing? Like, what's the point of any of this? Like, what's the point of my job? What am I doing? And now you're getting into where people's lives are in danger. It's not their changes getting stolen. Their fucking sunglasses are getting stolen. It's, you know, people people's lives are being affected. That heavy weight to bear. Heavy weight. Heavy well, discovery, weight. discovery changed the whole entire game for policing and the the nexus from the police department to the attorney's office. And, and what's even, what's even more crazy about that. I remember we had one particular uh, firearm arrest and it was, it was maybe about eight months later uh, that they had requested my memo book. Now I didn't know because I was on vacation. And so whatever happened with the, uh, with the administration office, I, 
I don't know what what breakdown there was, but they never let them know I was on vacation. There must have been some type of mix-up. But I was on vacation. And all they wanted was my memo book for this particular firearm arrest. And because of that, the judge was actually looking to suppress this gun collar at, 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 at a map hearing. So, I, I mean, I think it's the most insane thing. And I had to go through hoops. I remember uh, they called me from legal and they were all nervous. And, oh, my God, you know, you, sure you got to talk to the judge. I don't want you to get in trouble. I said, I was on vacation. Oh, we have to explain why you didn't give your memo book? I mean, it's the most insane thing, right? All the memo, And I'll be honest with you, I didn't put shit in my memo book. I never put shit. I said, this is the most ridiculous thing. These are my notes. So you have to have my notes, you know, it, it, to know that I was working. You're damn right I was working. I didn't, help, I didn't participate on a gun arrest on my off-duty time. So, yeah, you really need my memo book to know that I was working. They were, they were potentially going to throw this gun case out because they didn't have my memo book because I was on vacation. And like you said, this is a problem with the discovery law. And, and uh, fortunately, you know, this judge didn't throw it out. After I had to go down and explain I was on vacation. It was the most ridiculous thing. But in many cases, if they don't get a copy of a memo book, they're throwing the case out. I mean, before any of these laws were enacted, they were throwing cases out. Right? Like Absolutely. New York City was never fucking great. I mean, they were throwing out half the cases they were getting anyway. Then they fucking got, then they get all these laws. They put all of these insane leftist laws. I'm, I, and again, I'll say it a million times the anti victim, the victim last legislation. Victims are nowhere in this legislation. This, this legislation is meant to benefit perpetrators. It's it's the most in fucking sane thing to me because you know I, I understand that you know we want to treat people humanely and we want to we want people to to do better and go through life but we're making them fucking worse and not only are we making them worse like I said we're strengthening the roots in the community when when you're a young kid and you got no money and both your parents are working and you're in the park and you're seeing kids just get arrested and nothing's happening to them. The judge isn't doing anything to them. Guess what you're going to do when you have no fucking money and you want to you wanna be just like the older kids in the neighborhood. You're going to do exactly what they're doing. But if you were that same kid years ago when people were going to jail for doing dumb shit, you're going to say, you know what? That's not the way I'm going to go. I'm going to fucking become a good person. I'm going to act straight in society because I'm not going to be like that guy and be in and out of jail and be a fucking loser, right? But now... They're seeing nothing's happening to these kids. There's no consequence. So, so everyone's familiar with that. Everyone's familiar with what's going on. So, you know, again, we're strengthening the roots of crime. We identify the roots, and instead of trying to eliminate them, we are strengthening them. We're growing them. So this guy talks about um, – he talks about the discovery law. He says of all the criminal justice reforms the state legislature passed in 2019 on bail on – bail, Discovery, parole, and raise the age. Discovery reform was the most pernicious. Um, I'll give you the definition of pernicious because I needed to know it myself. <laughs> it is an adjective. It's tending to cause death or serious injury deadly. I think the way he intended it was here, number two, causing great harm and destructive. Having the quality of injuring or killing, destructive, very mischievous, baleful, malicious, 
wicked. Um, so that's how he, he says it. It's the most pernicious. It imposed an impossible burden on prosecutors to turn over almost every imaginable piece of evidence to the defense in just 20 to 35 days, including all body-worn cameras, even for officers not directly involved with the arrest, all police disciplinary records for every officer on the scene, witnesses' names and contact information, meaning if prosecutors worry a witness is put at risk or can be intimidated, they must petition a judge to redact that information. I just want to stop right then and there, right? Right then and there. We're giving fucking names away of people. And in an arbitrary manner, the DAs are going to determine who's going to be at threat and who's not to hand that over. And if by some mean they say, oh, this guy's a bad guy, he's going to fucking kill them. And that's most likely going to come from the police officer that arrest them. Like, don't give that witness his name. They have to go to a judge and have a judge redact it. And yes. What, and what happens if the judge says no? Crazy. Crazy. Um, how about this one? Criminal records of potential witnesses. So we should never judge a criminal. Criminals <laughs> get jail forever. I mean, criminals get, you know, they want to wipe away everything. They don't want criminals to go to jail. They don't want criminals to get treated any differently in society, regardless of the crime they committed, anything. They want them to have the best of the best, give them an on-ramp. But if they're a witness to a crime, now their records matter. It's funny. I'm, I'm so glad you read that because I, I read the discovery laws. And when I started looking at the discovery laws, I said, that particular one that you read, I said, wow, this is like a woman who goes out to a party and she wears something sexy and she gets raped. And they say, you know what? You got raped because you're wearing a sexy freaking outfit. It, it's almost like the same thing. So, you know what? Uh, yeah, you're a, you're a witness, uh, but you know what? Uh, you got a past, so we don't know if you know if if you're if you're liable, if you're credible anymore. I mean, since when do we do that? That 100. This discovery was it, it's sinister, and, and it's meant to break down the foundation of society. It really is because, and what person in their right mind wants to go forward with a complaint knowing that your information may not be redacted? So now they have my home address. They have all my information, potentially where I work. This is this is insanity. No, yeah. We're I supposed mean, to protect the victims. Yeah. If somebody asked me, oh, should I go ahead and testify now? I'd say absolutely not. You're not safe. I don't even think, I don't I, I don't even think the cops are safe today. I don't even think the cops are safe today going out there. That's another thing, but I you know, I won't even go down that road. That's for another day. But I don't think I don't think if, if you start to get threatened, if we start to get an organized element, which we have, and it's going to continue to grow, you're going to you guys are going to have big problems. You're going to have to be a lot. You're going to have to be some brutal people. You better not be no soft guys because, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to have to be some brutal individuals to protect your family. Um, I used to tell my cops that. I'm glad you said that, that you have to be vigilant off duty. Absolutely. Don't think that you're off duty and and, and you're not a target because your 58 is now public information and you can have some lunatics that just, you know what? They've been doing their research. They have nothing else to do. And you're at the top of their list of who they're talking on the 58. Maybe they want to kill you just like they did officer Lou and officer Ramos. So a hundred percent, right. That 
you may not even ever arrested this person, but you know what? You're Eric Dim, you're number one in the 58. You know what? You're the guy that they hate. You represent cops out there that are, are brutalizing people. You're a state brutalizer, right? Yep. This one's insane. Expert witness resumes and writings. Right? I'm so glad that you read. I don't think, I don't think, honestly, most of the cops have never read this. You so, have to, you got to say that again. Expert witness resumes and writing and <laughs> writings. So I'm just going to give you a scenario, right? And it wasn't this bad. Like there, there wasn't a rape involved in this. It was just a burglary. But I'm going to give you an example of what happened. I responded to a 31 where someone bashed in a, a slider back door and broke into a woman's house. Now, she wasn't raped. She wasn't. The guy didn't think anyone was home. But imagine, God forbid, she was, right? So 31, he smashes the glass. He goes through the glass door. She's home. She flips out. She says, I don't think he attacked her. I think he ran out. But he grabs something and he ran out. I canvas. It's a rainy, dark night. I canvas. I go right by the main train station that's a few blocks away. And as I get there, I see a male in a hood in the rain walking fast. I pull up in my unmarked, and I always did what I would always do. I drive super slow to see what you're going to do. So he's walking fast. He feels the car there, and he all of a sudden stops like a soldier into a bus stop right before the train stop. He clearly looked like he was beelining to the train to me. He stops at the bus stop, and like a soldier, about face, like he's waiting for the bus. Never looked at the time, never looked at anything. And when he does it, I just see a shimmer of glass all over his jacket, like a shimmer everywhere, all over him of like little glass shards. So I know I have him. Like, this is it. I stop him, you know, boom, boom. I start talking to him, where you're coming from. I cuff him up right away because I'm like, this, this guy has, he winds up having property from the house. And down the road, he admits it, like, as we're back at the station house and he writes a confession and he was out on, like, he had done, like, 10, 15 previous burglaries, right? But imagine he gave me nothing. He had no property on him. And the only thing I had on him, and I took the photos of his jacket and I took his jacket off and I vouched it for arrest evidence with the glass shards on it. So now what we would do to prove that case is get an expert witness to say the glass that was on his jacket, more than likely 99% came from that door that he smashed through, right? If now, if, if then this was a rape, or, or something that we needed to do. I mean, he was a career burglar. I do believe we should have had to go that route for him, regardless of the rape or not. But now we're saying that this expert witness would have had to hand over his resume and all his writings about this case in 35 days. How we even, I don't, I don't even think we're going to get to the point of contacting an expert witness within 20 days. You know, how is that happening? You know, it's it, so basically if this guy didn't admit anything, if he didn't have any property, he's walking. He's walking. And uh, what's the importance? I always say this. What, what's the importance? Do you have the caption there where you have to turn over a, a cop's discipline record? I, I, I understand what's the importance of that in regards to a case. And, and it's completely unfortunate. You you have it. I think there's two lines that refer to a cop's discipline record. All police disciplinary records for every officer on the scene, 
That's so right. every officer on the scene, your disciplinary record matters. Regardless if you're involved, if you're not, if you've seen something, if you didn't. You showed up to the scene after it was all said and done, and you went 98. <laughs> your disciplinary record needs to be there. Um, and then it's disciplinary records of any possible police witness and any material related to the case. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the two lines. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. So they call that, that's called the jingle material for cops, where you have to turn over your, your discipline record, which obviously is, is used to discredit you. But you're a cop who's full duty, you're in uniform, in any job that you work in, whatever job you have evaluations you're going to make mistakes or be disciplined and there's corrective behaviors but in this case how is that used let's say someone shot someone or a gun case how is the cop's discipline record going to be used as a defense it's absolutely ridiculous the cop is in full duty operating as a police officer it shouldn't matter if last year the cop lost his plaque or six months before that you know, the cop was off post and got disciplined or the cop received charges because, you know, even if they went and snuck a beer in the precinct and they received charges, how does that have any relation to when they were full duty doing their job appropriately and made an appropriate arrest? I don't see it. I don't see the connection. I don't see how it's necessary. But clearly, that's why I say it's sinister. That's just there just as another mechanism so that this person – Never makes it past the hearing. Yeah, like I, I, I think that's why it's titled very well. I think this is very titled very well. Again, the titles, um, the titles is New York's discovery laws are designed to let criminals go free. So I, I think the title really, and 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 I'll say it with all of the laws that have came out recently, and all of the policy that's been instituted by the NYPD as well. It's not just the laws. The policy in the NYPD is getting it's so restrictive and it's so puts all of the responsibility on the individual officers that it's 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 not even fair or accurate or right or there and and and, and there there is no clear message like what what you should do when you respond to a scene. What you should do when you respond to a scene is pray to God nothing happens, which I'm sure is what's going on most of the time. Um so he says, uh, prosecutors who have not completed all their discovery obligations are deemed not ready for trial. What could possibly go wrong? We see that a lot went wrong in a recent Manhattan Institute study. If anyone doesn't follow Manhattan Institute, you should. They're, they're probably the only ones giving data and statistics. You know, um, I know Heather McDonald is, uh, is an, I think she's an adjunct there. Um, and, you know, she's definitely opinionated, but she definitely gives statistics on everything. So for the public, I mean, statistics, you know, numbers don't lie. Numbers are what they are, you know. And the detailed analysis finds tens of thousands of cases are being dismissed because it's nearly impossible to dis uh, it's nearly impossible to comply with the discovery law. Like I said, all that stuff has to be gathered. Who's doing that? You're doing on an overburdened department, under over understaffed, overworked. Who's doing this? Like Eric says, like, you know, you know, like the whole big push, oh, we're gonna get everybody out on the street, meaning you're not gonna have any any officers doing this, doing administrative work. So who's doing this? 
who's who understands what needs to be done other than an officer you know i i mean and and they're so overburdened and overworked with all the other policy that things are just falling falling by the wayside how could they not how could they not i mean the main the main goal is to stand like a light pole in the transit system and hope nothing goes wrong in the next car down or in the next station over you know um so cases are taking longer to dispose of Conviction rates are way down. Defense attorneys aren't even opening the files sent to them by prosecutors. 60% of the time, participation in alternate sentencing program is down. And disillusioned young assistant district attorneys are leaving DA's offices in droves. The study points out that in New York City in 2019, for discovery reform, 49% of misdemeanor cases resulted in dismissals. In 2021, that number soared to 82%. In 2022, it was 74%. Defendants are unsurprisingly playing out the clock. What do you think about that, Eric? From four, from 49 <laughs> to 82%. Well, it illustrates what you said. This was happening prior to bail reform and prior to discovery. I mean, that's almost 50%. That's a flip of the coin. So that's almost, for every arrest, there was a 50% chance that arrest was going through or not. But now the bail reform and the discovery laws exacerbated. And you said you said 82 or 89%. I mean, that's almost 100%. We're getting closer now to 100% chance that that's not making it to any form of prosecution. And, and, what, and, what, and, and like, we're just talking about things that are getting thrown out, right? We're not talking about we're not talking about what what's getting dumbed down to a violation and pled right out. We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're not talking about when you get convicted and nothing happens to you. Your sentence is you get our class. You get our class. You go you go to the art class for an hour. I mean, that's going on. I mean, that was a yeah, you know, that was our good friend Eric Gonzalez in the Brooklyn DA's office. That's what he was doing. Art class. Art class. Um, right. Well, it's it's twofold for him. One. It it continues to show a conviction rate, but it also coincides with his identity politics and his woke movement of social programs and no one going to jail. So this person doesn't go to jail. They get a social program going back to uh, root causes. Uh, you know, maybe they didn't get to go to school. They, you know, they got to do art class now and they're not going to jail, but they got a conviction. Yeah. So he goes on further to state, one result is that most misdemeanor defendants are no longer taking pleas. Why would they? In 2019, 50% to 60% of city misdemeanor cases were disposed of at arraignment. In the first six months of 2022, per the latest Office of Court Administrative Statistics, only 25% of city misdemeanor cases were disposed at arraignment, meaning the remaining 75% went on to further clog the system. I mean, that's the same. We can say it right now. So for every four people that are being arrested, only one is getting uh, only one is getting held at, at arraignment. That's three out of four. On, on a low level, it's nothing. But now when we talk about 100 perpetrators, 75 are backfilling the DA's office. I mean, of course they're overwhelmed. 
How can they yeah. handle these cases? It's yeah. impossible. And, and people aren't even taking plea deals anymore, like like getting pled out or nothing, because they know that how how messed up the system is. Just plead not guilty at that time, because you could always do it down the road if they catch up, right? But yes. plead not guilty at that time. And and basically, your case is getting thrown out, and you you will never get a conviction. You won't get a violation. You won't get anything on your record. It'll be nothing. It'll completely, because you're just clogging the system up completely. Um, assistance- wasn't there discovery 15 days? I'm sorry. Wasn't discovery, and then you said in the article 20 to 30, but wasn't the discovery actually 15 days? Uh, for us, it's 15 days to get it to the 15 DA. days, right? Yeah. For us, for the NYPD, we only have 15 days to get it to the DA. But, yeah, which, the, but the DA only has 20 to 35 days to say that they're ready. No, I'm sorry. The DA has 90 days to say that they're ready. Um, yeah. So he, he, he has one portion. I, I didn't read this portion. I'll give it to you. It has become a distasteful, a distasteful game of criminal justice chicken. If ADAs cannot comply with the, their discovery obligations, they cannot answer ready for trial. If they do not answer ready for trial on misdemeanor cases within 90 days, the case gets dismissed. So basically, what and, and, and these uh, community groups, you know, that are trying to lower incarceration, they're telling these people we're, we're paying taxpayer money for them to tell people who are committing crimes. Don't plead to anything. The case is going to get thrown out anyway. Don't worry about it. Um, assistants have to try to comply with these ridiculously erroneous discovery obligations on cases that let a, that that used to plead out immediately. Right. So you got arrested for a felony, a low level felony. They plead you out to a misdemeanor right away. Right. You'd have a misdemeanor, whatever would happen. If you had to serve a little bit of jail time, you would, you wouldn't typically you never really pled on the, on the charge you were guilty of unless it was real egregious. So, so that's what they're saying is that's not happening anymore. Um, so the answer for many DAs is to triage. They must decide which cases will prosecute and which they will dismiss with the resultant 82% misdemeanor dismissal rate. Is it any wonder that shoplifting, parentheses, a misdemeanor, is such a growth industry in, in Gotham? I mean, I mean, and that's what we're seeing, complete lawlessness. Right. Complete lawlessness. The focus on high. We're going to focus on major crime. Is is the worst statement I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. And you said it before, not only is there a mass excess in the NYPD, but there's a mass excess in New York City. I mean, think about CVS, Walgreens, these big stores, they could survive the highest security. But if you're a small mom and pop pharmacy, how can you survive in New York City right now having to hire extra security, a loss prevention system because you can't depend on the police anymore or the actual um, actual justice system of New York City because they, they're going to ransack your place if you don't have security. You're going to lose money. You're going to go with the financial ruins because of these laws. So some of these mom and pop stores, they have to close down or relocate to another city. They cannot make it here with these laws. It hurts the victims. And in many cases, sometimes the victims are not just individuals, they're businesses. I mean, you see it now. Uh, you go to a, you, if you're in New York City and you go to a, a Walgreens and you want to get something like, you want to get a razor. 
You might have to wait 20 minutes. It's locked up. You have to get someone to help you so that you can get a razor. And you might have to wait 20 minutes because the place is busy. So you're inconveniencing everybody. You're hurting a business so that you support a potential perpetrator. I mean, this is the upside down one. This just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and then he goes on. Felony cases are slightly better due in large part to the allocation of precious resources to the more serious cases and the longer six-month speedy trial time. Even so, in 2019, 21.15% of felony cases were dismissed. In 2022, the number ballooned to 35.11%. These increased dismissals are not because the defendant is proven innocent. They are dismissals based largely on the inability of the ADAs to provide the required discovery material and time. To give one example of the problem's magnitude, the Queen's DA's office reported that by the end of 21, it had turned over 54,000 police body-worn cameras and 1.6 million discovery files to the defense. Body-worn cameras average about 30 minutes, and many are far longer. So conservatively, these assistants had to review about 20,000 hours of video, 1.6 million documents before sending them to the defendants. So just to go there, I mean, what, how many DAs are in a DA's office? 10, 15, 20? Depending on the borough, the size of the borough, you, the, you're never getting 20. 15 is probably saying, what, what, yeah. what is it? It's, it, it let's, let, let's, ju let's just give it, let's just say there was 20. I think it's much less. I want to say Staten yeah. Island, I, I don't even know what they had. They probably had about, they probably had 12. I don't, I don't know. Like off the top of let's, my head. Like you said, let's say 20. Fine. Let's say 20. Let's say 20. They're not reviewing any of this. It's completely impossible. 50, no, this is no way. one DA's office. This is one DA's office. 54,000 body cameras in one year. It's impossible. Break that up among 20 people. Well, that's why I say clearly the legislation never gets a police perspective. And that's why they don't understand. In their minds, and because they don't understand, it goes back to the Dunning-Kruger effect, they don't understand police work, that if someone is being arrested for a particular crime, let's say it's one person, to the legislation that has zero idea about police work, they think it's one person, and most likely two cops will handle it. So we need two body cameras. But you and I know it's not one person, it's one incident. There may be 20, 30 cops at one incident to arrest one person. How can the district attorney's office view 20 to 30 cameras for one case when it's a constantly arrested coming through the door? Well, I guess if you're only going to focus on major crime, I guess you could do it. But every crime needs the same detail. It needs to be thorough. It's just impossible. It's a lose about I'm sure in many cases, they're not even going to attempt it, and they're just going to let the 90 days pass. They just can't do it. Yeah, absolutely. You'd have to. Like that's what they're saying. They're triaging. They're just putting things in, in order. They're saying, all right, this was this was on the news. This is bad. Let's get rid of this. If it's real quiet, whatever, throw it out. Who cares? It is what it is. Well, this goes back to what you're saying. That just shows that Lady Justice is not blind. Because if we actually sit and say, well, this case looks like it's a porn, so this case is going to go to the front of the pile. This one doesn't. I mean, it's supposed to be blind. It should just be misdemeanor, misdemeanor, felony, felony, and who's handling it? It's supposed to be blind. But justice is not blind yet. No, yeah. And listen, listen, if I got arrested for something I didn't do or I got arrested for something that maybe I did do and I got a charge, I would expect 
that I get a fair trial. And I, and I would want, and I would want all the evidence to be presented too. And I would, I wouldn't want this lingering over my head for years, but what, the, where are the victims in this? Yeah. Like, this it's is just sad. like, you know, like me and you did a lot of proactive police work based upon observations. Right. Um, I do believe we, you know, there were some criminals, there were some victims in there at some points. So it led back to other cases and things like that. But the majority of arrests we make are based upon someone being victimized, you know, as a police department, as a whole, where like we're victimizing the victim by doing this. We're re-victimizing this. Oh, the police are too busy for my case. Yeah, this guy fucking stuck his finger up my ass. But the police are too busy for me because they got to get all this stuff and the discovery laws. The, the victims, again, victim last legislation. That's why I said it. This guy's highlighting exactly what I keep saying. We're criminal first. New York City is a criminal, has a criminal first agenda. When you're a piece of shit, you're placed on the totem pole. When you're a victim, you're placed all the way on the bottom. Nobody cares about you. And again, I'm not saying that we should be victimizing perpetrators either, but I mean, we, we, we got to do better than this. This, this is, this is disgusting. And I I get if I get what the ideology is, but they don't understand, right? You were arrested. You're innocent until proven guilty. And I get it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be sitting in a cell because of your financial status and your, and your status in life, your economic status should not play a role or a factor in America. But we have to be realist and understand that if someone was arrested 50 times in their life, there's, and they've never been convicted because of our system, and so we have to say, wait a minute, uh, this person was in the wrong place 50 times? I mean, how many coincidences on their life? That, that someone... If they're being arrested for something violent, that's someone that should sit in a cell and maybe wait pending trial because this person's been in the wrong place 50 times. There's just how many coincidences are there in life? This, that's, that's what's ridiculous, but the legislation does understand. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was never arrested. I was never unlucky enough to be in the wrong place 50, 50 times. And even you arrested, but you were arrested twice. You weren't arrested 50 times. I mean... At some point, numbers do matter. Absolutely. I, I think they do. Yeah. And he goes on to point out, and that is just Queens, which has historically had only 16% of city crime. It's only responsible for 16% of the crime. He goes, Manhattan's body-worn camera unit has linked and stored more than 339,000 videos associated with investigation and cases between January 2020 and March 4, 2022. It's not as simple as hiring more paralegals to prep discovery. The typical misdemeanor ADA carries anywhere from 100 to 200 cases at any given time. The law requires that ADAs file the certificate of compliance with the court certifying all discovery has been completed. If the assigned assistant's responsibility to make sure discovery is complete and then there is nothing in it that would endanger witnesses. Well, that's a joke. That's a joke by saying that. I mean, there's everything in there to endanger witnesses. That's a complete joke. 
but but it's their responsibility to do that. How could they possibly do that? You have 200 cases that you have 90 days. And, and you know, they're saying they're holding 200, but that's, to me, that sounds like it's a rotating 200. Like, yeah, this, I have 200 cases today. Tomorrow, I'll still have 200. So, you know, oh, absolutely. You, you know, absolutely. As, I, as I go, I'm like, you know, and I'm trying to put in the pecking order. So there's no way that you could possibly you could possibly do that. And then, and then you're going to petition judges on the witness behalf. No, you're going to focus on, I mean, I would love to know if you have a hundred, if you have 200 cases, you're holding, and that's just misdemeanor, by the way, the typical misdemeanor ADA carries 200 cases, right? If you're holding 200 cases, how many are making that 90 day mark? You know, how many are really making that 90 day mark? Because there's other things that will be coded out in here that wouldn't even tell in here. I'm saying right now, the the over overwhelming majority is not getting pro the numbers are higher than this. The numbers are higher than what's even what's even in this data right here. Um right, because they're not factoring also decline prosecution. Yeah, right at the bat. Boom, right then and there, before discovery even comes into play. Right, because they, I, I'm sure that I'm sure they probably look at some of these cases and we probably have prima facie, which means we, we've met the parameters for, for probable cause and we have the evidence, but they probably look at it and say, wait, there's no way for this particular arrest that we can get everything in 90 days. We can't get all the video. We can't get the body cameras. We can't get, we can't do a correct canvas. We can't get it. We'll do, we'll just decline to prosecute right now. Those numbers are definitely not factored in there. Yeah, so because of the increased attrition in, in DA's offices, cases are transferred from departing ADAs to new ADAs. So now you don't even know the case, right? So you get in this case that this other guy worked on that maybe they didn't even work on. You're just getting it at a less time frame, right? And they must review all the discovery material once again. If they find anything, no matter how trivial, that wasn't turned over, they're required to file a new certificate, which will trigger a new def defense motion to dismiss so now you get this case and this guy missed one he missed eric dim's uh eric dim's uh memo book which states right. absolutely nothing you know which states absolutely nothing that will trigger a new defense motion to dismiss the case you weren't ready this da said they were ready they weren't ready more than likely it'll get thrown out as the manhattan institute study notes city crimes are up but arrests are down NYPD clearance rates are dipping, suggesting witnesses and victims are fearful of coming forward, knowing their, their, their name will be made known to the defendant very quickly. It's so sad. These legislators have destroyed a criminal justice system that had reduced crime by 70 percent and reduced incarceration by 60 percent between 1993 and 2019 and had made New York City, the safest large city in America. So, I mean, that's a telltale right there. Listen, listen to that, man. That's that's crazy. They reduced crime by 70 percent and they also reduced incarceration at the same time by 60 percent. Wow. Wow. Why? Why? The oh, no. What's that? Why the incarceration go down? As as crime went down, when we're going, when we're we're slamming on the brakes, we're 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 going after minor crime. We're we're like enough of this shit. We're attacking broken windows theory. Uh, are you know arrests arrests go up, right? 
crime goes down by 70% and incarcerations get reduced by 60% because people are afraid now. They're like, oh, these guys aren't messing around. If I act out of moral standards or, or what's acceptable in society, there are consequences for it. So people see consequences. So there's less people go to jail. But we're doing the reversed opposite. So now we're going to end up with more people that deserve to be in jail. And I'm sure right now we're seeing a lot of these people that their cases are getting thrown out deserve to be in jail. Oh, absolutely. Well, I say too, it's they want to protect the, the uh, they want to protect the perpetrators and, and treat them as victims because of root causes. In many cases, they're hurting these perpetrators also because they're not getting a chance to rehabilitate them. So you get arrested for robbery, you get arrested for a burglary, you're a recidivist, and then because of bail reform, you're immediately out. And during the time while you're out until your next court date. You're going out and you're committing more burglaries and more robberies. So by the time you actually get to your court case, now you're not facing a char one charge. You're facing several charges when you should have been sitting in a cell getting rehabilitated. Insane. Then he goes on. Their bail reforms released thousands of Korea criminals from jail, unleashing a terrible crime wave on the city and then compounded it by making it impossible to prosecute criminals when they get arrested. It is time for state legislators to sit down with prosecutors and responsible members of the defense bar and fix this. Well, I will say this, and, and, and I mean this. There's a huge blame on bail reform and the nexus with the DAs. But what we forget to also put the blame on, more importantly, is the judges in these cases. And we, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's that's who we connect with the DAs. But the judges, I think they have a huge stake in this, a huge accountability, because even before the bail reform and before discovery laws, these judges were extremely lenient, extremely lenient. You can't get uh, in many cases, you can't get these guns past a suppression hearing, even uh, low level uh, misdemeanors. Uh, they're looking to throw them out for the littlest thing. So I, we have some very liberal judges. I agree. And again, they're politically appointed. Um, and now with bail reform, though, they don't even have discretion. So they can't even say, wow, I could override this, you know. Right. So even in, you know, and, and I agree with you that they're, they're already so lenient. Now it's like even if they didn't want to be lenient because it's egregious, they have no choice. The law restricts them. Um, so and then he goes on to say or. They can just be honest and acknowledge as they campaign that they view the increased crime and dysfunction in the criminal justice system as an acceptable cost of these reforms and tell people to suck it up and live with it and then let the voters decide. Jim Quinn was an executive district attorney in the Queens DA's office where he served for 42 years. Wow. So he's obviously not the person that should be writing this law. He's not obviously the person that would know the cause and effects of these law. What we need is a 23-year-old devout, devout socialist who spent their whole life in college and city council to come up with these laws. Jim has no business. His 42 years of experience are wrong. You know, he's seen the worst of the city. He's seen the best of the city. He's seen how it turned. Jim's opinion matters nil. 18 years, uh, someone 18 years in the district attorney's office, like me and you, 
no opinion in, in this law whatsoever. This is, again, crimes of polit- what's going on in New York City is a politically created crisis. We got to we got to get Jim Quinn on here because I, I'd love to hear his his perspective. I mean, I, I'm envisioning that he must be just completely angry because he saw, like you said, he saw the tides turn and he knows no one knows better than him. The nexus and the dichotomy of police work and how it works with the district attorney's office to actually get prosecution. And he knows what goes into each case. And he knows there's no way. That's why he's saying there's no way in New York City that you can make it within 90 days. You just can't. It's not enough time. And, and, and that's in Queens. What about in Brooklyn, which is the, you know, is the largest borough, the, the highest population? How can they do it there? There's no way. I mean, there's 20, what, 26 precincts in Brooklyn. How can they do it? It's yeah. overloaded. That's an overloaded office. There's no way Brooklyn can even handle that. Yeah. So, and again, this all stems back to votes, right? If, yeah, Bragg is politically, uh, you know, he's elected, right? All, all of our DAs are elected. So we should be electing district attorneys who are there to prosecute criminals, ensure to hold the police accountable that they are arresting and locking up criminals, right? That's what they're there for. But they're, they're prosecutors. They're not social workers. And then on top of that, we're electing people in our state, in our state legislator, in our city council for governor, for mayor. And they're there to, to make law that makes sense. They're there to make law to, to, for the betterment of society. And what they did is the exact opposite. They're making it for the destruction of society for political gain. I mean, here we go. If we would have had a Lee Zeldin, I bet you, I guarantee you right now, there'd be a lot of things being changed. You'd see a lot of DAs calling for these laws to get pulled back because they know they're going to get removed from office because they would get held accountable. But we need to hold these politicians accountable. And you know what? And when it's not election season, you know how else we hold them accountable? By not allowing ourselves to be pawns and let them sit there at a fucking street naming and stand there like they, they, they love the police just because it's election time and you say how you're on the same page as them and they're your partners when they fucking stab you in the back for the next three and a half years when it's not election time. And they tell everybody you're a racist and that your job needs to get shut down and you need to learn de-escalation and there needs to be training and all this shit. That's how else we hold them accountable. We hold them accountable by letting everyone know exactly what Jim did. He's being retired and unfiltered, just like we are. He's telling the fucking truth. He is the expert. And he's he did for fucking 42 years and he's telling you this is a fucking path for destruction. I never met him, but shout out to Jim McQuinn for writing this article and giving facts. The, you said it, these statistics are numbers and numbers that don't lie. And to show the increase prior to bail reform and discovery, you were at 49%. Like I said, flip it a coin, but it jumped to 82%. So it almost doubled. In, in This was what, 2019 compared to 2021? In a two-year span, it almost doubled. That's insane. And how many got and and what about the decline prosecution rates? I guarantee those skyrocketed. I guarantee those skyrocketed. I know they did. I mean, I would love to get Jim McQuinn here and to, to see those numbers for decline prosecution rates. I mean, I mean they especially right now with the way things are with the when it comes to to a stop. If you're doing proactive police work and you stop someone and you initiate an encounter, it, it's they know it's not. They know it's not going to make it past suppression hearing, or they just that they're, they're not 
concerned to even assist you to get it past the suppression hearing. It's it's not it, it, they're going to decline prosecution right there. And you know what? I'm skeptical on that. Also, that uh, is that are those numbers going to reflect? Because that's the code decline prosecution, but they can put it in as deferment, and it's a different code. And then down the line, it, it actually it they don't prosecute, but the code was up as, as deferred. And right, if the public says what it means, decline prosecution immediately upon arrest, it's not going to make arraignment. District attorney's not going to draw up an affidavit, which means it will never see a day in court. A deferment means that it's exactly that. We're going to give an ample amount of time to get more evidence to bring this to court, but it hasn't been actually thrown out yet. Eventually, down the line, it will be thrown out. So it's a different code. It's going to change the, the numbers. I mean, it's manipulation. Yeah, we're talking about cases right now. We're talking about cases with this article that were drawn up by the district attorney and were later dismissed due to due to the discovery law. Right. And we're not even talking about when someone gets convicted and now they're back out on the street because of bail reform. Um, so it's again, I think all of it was set up. All of it was set up to to allow criminality in our society. Um, it's sad to say, but I mean, you, people got to wake up. People got to wake up. The cops got to wake up. The cops got to stop playing nice with these politicians. And I, like I said, you be respectful. You don't have to shake anybody's hand. You don't have to take a picture with anybody. You know, that's it. These people are not your friend. They're not. They're yeah, not. I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I was at a, I was at a, uh, an event working in, in PSA 7 at the end of my tenure. We used to have work in housing. Uh, you know, I think they had them in the one to a priest and also it's called family day. So they have all the families out in housing and they have big barbecues and basically like a block party, shut it down. And I remember I was there. One of the last ones I worked, Darcel Clark came in. All these cops came running over trying to kiss her ass and take pictures with her. I didn't do it. I said, that's funny. You bash her every moment. You guys talk about how they won't draw up any cases from the assistant attorneys. Guess who do you think those assistant district attorneys work for? They work for Darcel Clark. They're at her direction, not drawing up these cases. And yet they all want to get in the Twitter picture and, and, and kiss her ass. Yeah. No big no no big deal that she tried to collar that captain for absolutely no reason, the duty captain. Remember for the she said he didn't respond in, in a timely fashion when he was at another job, when he he was handling like a bunch of other stuff that night, and she collared him for, for tampering with evidence. Speaking no. of, yeah, I, I know that guy, uh, uh, Asian captain. I think his name is Ayakuchi or something like that. Great guy. Worked with him. Uh, he ended up landing up. He did well on his feet. He landed up, I think, in the 2-4 in Manhattan. But he got railroaded in exactly in her direction. And he was he was one of the good ones. So if he uh, if he's out there listening to this, shout out to you. Uh, you were a good leader out there. Always a gentleman. I haven't said nothing, but uh, I, I had good memories of you. And he worked in the 4-0 priest and he got screwed. Yeah, but they did him was completely wrong. I, I when I heard that, I was like, "This is this is insane." I'm like, "It's absolute." And I didn't hear an I didn't hear an uproar at the time. And I'm like, "That's scary, man. This dude's getting arrested for no reason." We have a DA trying for political gain just to say I locked up a cop. What really there's there's nothing there to really say. The guy didn't do anything wrong. You know, um, I'm glad he landed on his feet, but God only knows the mental stress he was under at that time. He had just made exactly. Happen. Exactly. He was under extreme amount of mental pressure because here he is. He was a new captain. He was working as the executive officer in the 4 0 precinct. He's trying to enhance his career and get the ability eventually to be a commanding officer himself. 
and he got railroaded on a Dewey case. We wouldn't do that to a perpetrator. We wouldn't look to get them impeding an investigation in, in, in any matter, but we do it for, for, for a cop because it enhances their careers. How self-serving is that? And the same shit with Adams, you know, the same shit with Adams. Like, honestly, all these guys taking pictures and shaking hands with him. Honestly, like your, your man, I like, I pull your man card right there. It's all over. Like, <laughs> well, it's, you have to pull out of cards, dude. it's fucking, cause I, I, I like, I really, I got, I got, I got nothing to say to you. I really don't. I should still be on the job. I'm not because of him. So should thousands of other people. They should still be on the job because of him. They're not. It's disgusting. And because of him, most of you stuck something in your body that you didn't want. You got fucking raped. You got medically raped. And then he's going to sit there. Yeah, look, I'm shaking hands with this fucking guy who, by the way, hates my guts. Who, by the way, doesn't give a fuck about you. But he'll say stupid shit, like get stuff done. And it's like, it's all cool. Yeah, I took a, a picture with him. I Last thing I would... He, they, I don't. I don't know how much money I would need at this point to take a picture with him and shake my hand. It would. It would. It would definitely be seven figures at least. Seven figures at least. And and what's even more sad? I'll say fine. So some of these young cops out there, they may not know the history of Eric Adams and his resume, and they may only know him as mayor. But for some of these these uh, old cats on the job, I see these guys. Whimper to him, kiss his ass. Shameful. Meanwhile, they were they were spitting on the guy, talking stories about him, how he was he was never a cop, call him a piece of shit. But as soon as he became mayor, he was now the police expert. They wanted to get advice from him, right? Chief Kemper said it. Mayor Adams, we're gonna go by his plan. He there's no way Chief Kemper back in the early 90s when he was on the job talking about how great Adams was. But now he's going to kiss his ass and talk about his plan because he wants to get another star on his shoulder and get his kid into a good unit. Yeah. So, I don't know. So, let's see. Let's see if uh, 2023 is going to be the get stuff, get stuff done year. Uh, we're definitely going to check out all the stuff that he's not getting done and whatever he is getting done, you know. And we're, you know, we'll see. Is it going to be the Aaron Judge year? We'll see. Yeah, I don't even like that slogan, honestly. I know he thinks it's cool because he's got swagger. Get stuff done. You know what getting stuff done is? Is I, I decided to go wash my car today. I'm getting stuff done. I decided to move stuff in my my house. That's getting stuff done. Uh, running a city is not just getting stuff done. <laughs> I mean, th this is the slogan of a New York City mayor. The we're a brand. That's the best slogan you come up for 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 a brand. I mean, and that's his quote. He, it's not my line. It's his line. He said we're a brand. And well, if we're a brand, that's your line. Get stuff done. If we were commercial, you, I'm not buying anything from you. Your, your slogan sucks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got nothing else for this. I think we're going on two hours, ten minutes. So Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's good. You know, all you guys be safe out there. Thanks for tuning in. You know, we got a whole new view up here. You know, you know, definitely make sure you follow us, Rumble, YouTube. Follow our Twitter accounts, our Instagram accounts, uh, visit our website. Uh, we're going to be dropping some stuff soon, T-shirts, all that. Um, so, you know, I'm looking, I appreciate all you guys tuning in. Uh, we got a bunch of other great people coming on, you know, a ton of people that, that want to come on. So uh, appreciate all the support. Thank you, guys. You know, be safe out there. That's it. You're done. You're done. Uh, I, 
It's not record. That's awesome. I, I, dude, I love this one. You can see the time. I, I kept seeing the slogan come on. It's 